We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for Subscription Stories, True Tales from the Trenches. The single biggest source of churn might surprise you. It's not a communications issue or a product market fit issue or even an onboarding problem. The biggest driver of churn in most consumer subscriptions is what's known as passive or involuntary churn. Involuntary churn is when a customer is canceled due to a payment issue or other technical problem. According to ProfitWell CEO Patrick Campbell, a recent guest on Subscription Stories, involuntary churn makes up 20 to 40% of overall churn. Many organizations don't even track passive churn, and that's a huge mistake because there are ways to manage it. Today's guest, Paul Larson of Optimized Payments, is one of the leading experts on card not present payments and works with many of the world's largest subscription businesses on churn management. He launched his career at Reader's Digest, one of the earliest and largest subscription publications in the world. When Paul started, churn management focused on getting people to renew their subscription by mailing in a check. Since then, he has been deep in the world of credit cards, debit cards, and alternative payments, helping subscription merchants reduce costs and increase customer retention. In our conversation, we talk about why so many good subscribers end up in the dreaded do not honor bucket, who should own passive churn within the organization, and how to bring together the right team to manage involuntary churn. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks. Truly a delight to be here, Robbie. Thanks for inviting me. So before we even dive in, I would love for you to just explain to the audience how you think about customer lifetime value and why it's so important, especially right now. Well, customer lifetime value is the reason for having subscriptions or memberships in the first place, as far as I'm concerned. It's the total worth to a business of a customer over the entire period of their relationship. And it's driven by how long the relationship lasts and how much revenue it generates, right? And so we want to do everything. I exist in this world to do everything we can to mitigate the threats against lifetime value. There are two kind of overarching threats to customer lifetime value. Active churn, also known as voluntary churn. And that's where a customer proactively takes action to terminate the relationship. And passive churn, also well-known as involuntary churn, in which an unintended event threatens to end the relationship. Now, you're an expert on many things, but especially on passive churn, which is kind of an arcane topic. Can you talk about involuntary or passive churn and how you got involved in that world, became an expert? Arcane, that's an interesting word. 
because arcane actually applies to the subscription business in general, right? We think of it in terms of being a tsunami in the past 10 years or so, but we've always been in a subscription accepting culture, right? All the way back to Ben Franklin, who had subscriptions to Poor Richard's Almanac. But for me, it's really ironic because for 20 years out of college, I began working for the world's largest subscription company. And that was a company in which 100% of the churn was passive because credit cards were not yet on the scene. And therefore, every one of the 22 million annual subscribers they had had to take positive action to renew their subscriptions. Otherwise, they just dropped off. So what is this company called? What did they do? And what were the payments just for people? There were no credit cards. Were they just writing you a check once a year or what What was happening? It's a magazine. It was at that particular point in time, the largest direct marketing company on the planet. Few people under the age of 60 would have any appreciation for how gargantuan and how large a role it played in American life. It was Reader's Digest and it had 22 and a half million subscribers, every one of their customers, though, had to renew annually by sending in a check, right, or a money order or something like that, right? So that was kind of crazy. Also, counterintuitively, then, I was hired from the world's largest subscription company to a near startup whose goal was to revolutionize the magazine industry by introducing the concept They called it continuous service, got a patent for that, auto renewal tied to a credit card. Now, I come over to this company, Synapse, knowing nothing about credit cards, really, other than the one that I had in my wallet back in, you know, 1993. But I also knew that that Synapse, and we all loathed it when a hard-won subscriber relationship would crash and burn when neither party asked for that. To happen. So I was commissioned by them to spend every waking hour mining the payments ecosystem for tools and weapons that could be brought to bear in the war against passive churn. So I've been in this battle since 1993. And then when Synapse, 10 years after I joined, was acquired by Time Warner, and I saw how much more effective at mitigating and minimizing churn we were at little old Synapse, I decided to take kind of this churn crushing show on the road. And thank God, 18 years and 700 plus customers later, we're still fighting passive churn. It's an ever-changing landscape, but it does contain more than a few subscription-destroying landmines for sure. You pointed out that active churn or or voluntary churn is when the customer terminates the relationship. So they say, I don't like your subscription anymore. I'm not reading your magazine. I don't get to your gym. I don't have any more money. I don't want to spend my discretionary money on this. Passive churn or involuntary churn is the credit card stops working or I forget to write my check and or update my credit card information. And as a result, the relationship dives. Now, Most companies focus a lot on active churn. You know, let's improve the product. Let's improve the messaging. Let's tell people how great our product is and get them to use it so they stay. Why is passive churn such a big deal? Well, again, it hurts so much because neither party asked for it to happen. The elements that cause passive churn are both micro and macro. They are related to both individual events that happen to consumers as well as seminal events that affect kind of greater swaths 
of society. I know you work with a lot of organizations that are trying to manage passive churn. How big a problem is this relative to the whole churn issue versus active churn? For our customers, it's a bigger problem than passive churn. Okay, so it's a big deal. And people don't want to well, leave. Well, yeah. I mean, but when you think about it from the individual level, I've been to City Field to watch a Mets game and have a credit card fall out of my wallet. And I had to call when I got home and have it reissued. And meanwhile, every subscription that I had charged to that credit card was now subject to potential passive churn because the card would need to be reissued with fresh credentials, which the merchant, my subscription companies didn't have on file yet, right? So that's a micro version on a macro version. Consumer payments information is being compromised all the time, sometimes stolen in massive data breaches. And as a result, their cards may need to be shut down and reissued on a more massive scale. So there's something that can happen on a micro basis or a macro basis, just like with insufficient funds, right? That's insufficient funds are never going to go away. They're going to, they're going to increase or decrease depending on things like the economy. But a single customer may be over their credit limit for myriad personal reasons. But on the other hand, the economy writ large may be deteriorating such that there are many more insufficient funds occurrences in the ecosystem, which by the way, is the case right now. Yeah. So I appreciate how you've broken down some of the elements that drive passive churn. There's micro issues. I dropped my credit card and now I need a new one for all the subscriptions that I'm subscribed to. Each of those merchants has to have a new credit card or new information. And then also the macro issues. There was a data breach at Visa or there was a data breach at my bank. And as a result, all the credit cards were compromised. And then there's also things that have to do with operations like that, but there's also kind of bigger trends that are going on in the world, like everybody's struggling with less money and inflation. And we used to be stuck in our houses and loved watching streaming content all day long. And now that we can go outside again, maybe we're not as willing to spend to have multiple streaming services. So the players, maybe you can walk us through the players, I think just helpful to to break it down. So there's obviously the subscribers, right? There's the merchants. Those are the people who, the companies that offer the subscriptions. Who else do we need to understand in order to really understand how to manage passive churn? Well, in the payments ecosystem, as it turns out, no one engages, say, Visa and MasterCard directly, right? There's an intermediary required in between the merchant as they submit transactions into the networks and the networks themselves. So nothing goes directly to Visa. They all go through what's known as merchant acquirers. They're the only ones that are licensed, sponsored to directly access the credit card networks. We're talking about companies like Chase Payment Tech, FIS WorldPay, Pfizer First Data, Adyen. So that's the only required entity. Now it's true. So every merchant needs one of those. Even when you step up to the cash register and use a credit card at Walmart, Mm -hmm. that transaction is going through an acquirer to Visa or MasterCard. Now, some merchants choose to insert a gateway between themselves and an acquirer, sometimes out of ignorance, but oftentimes for ease of connectivity, they succumb to a sales call. 
It sounds like you're saying they bought something or they subscribed to something or they're paying for something that they shouldn't. No, it's not necessarily that they shouldn't, that they don't necessarily need to. Many of them have chosen to actually use a gateway because the gateway's connectivity model, their API, they call it, is simpler to code to because the gateway has done the harder job of coding to the acquirer. That can be a heavier lift than just coding to a gateway. And so many of them, and you've heard of them, right? You've heard of them. They are companies such as Stripe, such as Braintree, such as Cybersource. They say to merchants, we make it easier for you to connect to an acquirer. You don't have to do the heavy lifting. We've done that connectivity for you. We have a simpler record layout. Just code to that makes it easier to get onto the networks. Every Merchant has to decide for themselves whether or not they want to code directly to an acquirer or to a gateway. But when you do use a gateway, the gateways aren't going to do anything for free, right? So that's an extra cost, might be worth it. And you just have to make sure that nothing is being lost in translation as you pass your transaction, merchant passes the transaction to a gateway who's then going to turn around and pass it to an acquirer who's going to then pass it to the network. So there's one more handler of the transaction. In this day and age, most of them have learned how to make that connection flush and so that there's not that much lost in translation along the way. But there you have it. There's more handoffs on the way into and back from the Visa, MasterCard, Discover, and American Express networks. So you have the Visa, MasterCard networks. You have gateways are optional. Acquirers are required. Acquirers are required. And then there's another player that comes in. Well, a couple other players, I think. The billing systems, right? Especially in the world of subscriptions. These are your Recurly's, Zuora's, Vendicia's. There are merchants, great and small, who have determined that it's not worth their while to maintain an in-house billing system, right? They want to concentrate on marketing, building out their service, their product. And so they outsource this important functionality to a third party who engages the merchant acquirers and gateways on the merchant's behalf. So so each of these players, um, they, they, there is possibility for driving churn at at each of these stages. At the end of the day, you can imagine if I have an in-house billing system and I'm connected directly to an acquirer, which is virtually the horse's mouth, right? Because they're the ones that are connected directly to Visa and MasterCard. I'm really in control of my own destiny, right? I control the transactions. I do whatever I want. If I'm going to use a third party, the Recurly's Awards Vendices of this world, right? They're handling lots of transactions for lots of different merchants like me across lots of different gateways and acquirers. You just have to make sure that you do the due diligence to make sure the things that you need from them are not compromised by all of that varied functionality across different platforms that you don't actually need, right? So does that make sense to you, Robbie? Yeah. So these payment vendors can have a huge impact on your revenue. They're not just operational support. Depending on how they're optimized and how you've set them up, it can have an impact on your customer lifetime value. 
incredible because they're the ones that are handling the transactions on your behalf. Hopefully they've built into their platforms the tools and the weapons that are necessary for subscription success, right? So you've got to monitor that and, and make sure you're getting the highest level of best practices for recurring success as possible, right? So they have a huge impact. And I would also say that if you're going to outsource to a third party, like Vindicia Recurly, mention those names all the time, Zora, it's important also to make that decision with your processor in mind, right? So every marquee billing platform has a connection with every marquee acquirer. However, not all of those integrations are always kept up to the latest technical spec from those acquirers. So you want to make sure that you really do all that you can to create the best match possible between your billing platform and your acquirer or processor. Yeah. So it's important that they're all aligned and understand what's going on because there's so many processes, so many rules, so many regulations, not to mention people like you and me who lose a card or forget to update something. We're independent, right? So we want to make sure that our customers end up with the best possible partners for them. It's about transactional integrity. It's about cultural melding. I mean, there's a lot to consider when selecting an acquirer or a billing platform. We help our merchants create kind of a scorecard, which helps lead them to the best platform and a separate one, if they're just looking for a processor, a merchant kind of needs to develop a dual scorecard, which will help lead them to the best platform processor match if, in fact, they're going to outsource their billing platform. It's a big decision. We help a lot of merchants with their build versus buy decision so that they're making a good decision about whether or not to build their own billing platform or continue to bolster it as opposed to divesting themselves of it, the PCI burden that comes along with it, and keeping everything up to speed to counter all of the challenges associated with you capture over time, right? The causes of churn kind of expand and contract and expand again over time. Insufficient funds has always been there, always will be. It's just a matter of degree. But five, six, seven years ago, few would have guessed the ramifications of, say, prepaid cards on customer lifetime value, right? But the impact of prepaid has been palpable for some, especially companies serving hard goods subscriptions. So you need to either yourself or in conjunction with your acquirer and your billing platform, kind of determine your approach to, say, accepting prepaid cards, whether to accept them, decline them, accept reloadable only and not accept non-reloadable, big decisions. And you need help from your partners to be able to gatekeep those kinds of things. This is so interesting. I mean, what I'm getting is it's complicated. There's a lot of players. There's a lot of different methods of payment that are happening at any, at any point in time. And this is resulting in more than half of the churned subscribers that any merchant is dealing with. And in some cases, 
I think passive churn is acceptable, right? Insufficient funds. If, if I don't have any money to pay my bills, you should probably stop providing me with services. On the other hand, if I drop my credit card at the ballpark and it's just been a matter of time until I get around to updating my credit card, or maybe someone can even do that in an automated way for me, that's a customer that you really don't want to lose. So what are Visa and MasterCard, I guess they're kind of the biggest players at the core of this. What are they doing to sort of bucket or or figure out how to categorize the right people to flag from the wrong ones? I guess it, you'd call it to bucket the different categories of passive churn. Paul's dropped credit card. He's a pretty good guy. He seems to pay on time with a bunch of different subscriptions. We should let him go. But that Robbie, she seems to be more of a shifty character. Right. Well, at the highest level, I would say that this issue is so profound. And I guess you hear terms such as the membership economy or the subscription economy as if we inside of it were self-aggrandizing, right? But the truth of the matter is, here's a situation in which we have such a profound impact economically that an entire vertical has arisen just to tackle what we call decline salvage, right? So every merchant has some sort of logic associated with declined recurring transactions that drives the recovery process uh, that they've developed, right? These are like what? The flex pays, butter, gravy, Vendicia's retain. These are companies that help you kind of look at your list of people that are recommended to shut off and to figure out which of them should be kept and how do you keep them? What information do you need to keep them? That's correct. So they are truly salvage. Hopefully the merchants have already done really smart things themselves to try to recapture passive, potentially passive churn customers, right? And regarding your question about Visa MasterCard and what are they doing? Well, it's interesting that in the payments world, it seems that no good deed goes unpunished. Merchants have always felt that forces have been aligned against them to make processing more expensive and restrictive as possible. And even when the networks open one hand in a gesture of generosity, they seem to squeeze the other one a little bit more tightly shut. For instance, on the one hand, after literally Well, as long as I've been in the business, which is 30 years, handling declines, merchants have been complaining for decades that about the card issuers being lazy in categorizing and bucketizing their declines, quick to put them in a generic bucket with a generic identity. And that was frustrating to merchants because they've got this retry logic. And as this generic bucket builds up, they know it's kind of a cesspool of things, how much better it would be, how much more effective and cost-effective if those had better identities such that the retry logic could be refined and the people who really were recoverable could be gone after with more wise approaches to processing. So at the end of last year, Visa Mascar both finally, after 30 years, told issuers, stop. We need you to recategorize, redefine declines for what they really are. 
So that's an open-handed gesture, and it was a mandate. So, all right, this is one of the few times when Visa and MasterCard mandated that their issuers did something. In times past, whenever they approached issuers to be more beneficent to merchants, it would be recommendations, not mandates. So they did that now. But at the same time, the networks began to take a hard line on retrying certain declines in certain buckets, which created a unique conundrum because here the merchants are sitting back watching all these declines that were generic for decades now being flung into buckets every which way to Sunday. And they had no idea if truly hard declines were being thrown into hard decline buckets, which were now being prohibited from retries. And so that's an ongoing challenge. We, we could talk about that a little further if you'd like. Yeah. The high level thing is Visa and MasterCard were trying to do the right thing. They're trying to say, look, let's have some categories that we all agree to. We're going to require you to use them. And so when you decline somebody, you have to also put a reason to it. This is not all that different than what CRMs do in terms of requiring, describe why you lost this account or to label things to make it easier for everyone to understand and manage. But it sounds like it's actually not working. Well, it's getting there. It's just that merchants are suffering some travail along the way. You have to understand that this generic bucket, otherwise known in the industry as do not honor. You've probably heard of that. It's the infamous Mm -hmm. decline reason code 05, which comes back. So interestingly, for again, 30 years, do not honor was approximately 50% of all declined recurring transactions. Now it's under 10%. So the problem is not do not honor anymore. It's these other buckets in which former do not honor declines have been thrown. And it's been a crapshoot because you have to remember, it's not as if we just have 20 issuers of credit cards, which is what we had when the whole decline code structure was created 30, 40 years ago. We have literally thousands of issuers from the big banks to the local credit unions, and they're all taking their best shot at redefinition and recategorization. And it's kind of all over the map. So our recommendation is to merchants, whether they're ours or not, if they're ours, we go with them to their acquirers to consult with them about what they're seeing, how these declines are acting in their ecosystem, these new buckets. What we'd also say to our customers and most of our customers, we help develop the kind of internal reporting in which they are monitoring very closely their retry logic, right? It's being actively measured by decline, by retry attempt. Then you're well positioned to respond to these new declines in these new buckets. You'll know pretty early on whether or not the tactics you're using for that new bucket make sense. And so measuring retry logic is really important. So who should be doing this? In an organization, who should be owning this question of passive churn? Is it the CFO, the CMO? Is it a technical issue? Who do you work with when they're trying to get their arms around the retry logic and the relationship with the vendors? That's a great question. And I'm not being self-laudatory here at all, but of the 700 customers that we've had, 
they've almost all come to us, right? They've either felt some pain and Googled us or they've been at a conference and heard us. And so who's reaching out to us? It's either the CFO who feels the pain of the lost revenue or the CMO who's responsible for retention. Now, some enterprise size companies, the Netflixes of this world have hundreds of people in a department totally devoted to payments operations and success. But in small to mid-sized companies, the nagging pain caused by churn usually finally coerces someone in either marketing or finance to take control. So that's it. We end up as their payments consultant, usually ending up, we end up joining their their payments team or their payments task force. And it's a delight for us to be able to do. But I mean, when I think of, we've had an 18-year Almost from the very beginning, we were fortunate enough to engage one of the largest subscription companies in the U.S., and they're located just an hour away from us. So for 18 years, we go down there once a month, and we meet with their CFO, who's concerned about cash, their CMO, who's concerned about the policies and procedures that keep cash being driven to the bottom line, and the CTO, because we're going to talk about refining our strategies, and the CTO is going to have to do the work, right, in order to make the improvements that we need. So they all have skin in the game. It's usually taken control of by treasury or CFO or CMO. Got it. But ideally, it sounds like it usually requires all three or some kind of engagement in a task force because there's different levers and different insights coming from different parts of the organization. Now, last few years have been volatile, to say the least, between this global pandemic and incredible increase in subscription activity. I mean, we're seeing Peloton and the streamers and the home meal kits all kind of exploding, news organizations really seeing great growth. And then now we're seeing kind of the other side of it, inflation, layoffs, volatile stock market, hurting those same businesses. What's changed and what advice do you have for organizations that are kind of feeling a little bit of whiplash? All of that is true. And it's real. I mean, we monitor the results for all of our customers, and there are really some sobering data points in play at this particular point in time. I mean, the recent report from the Fed, which only goes through June, reports that we racked. I mean, (laughs) Americans have always been debt-oriented, right? And so that's not news, but we racked up $40 billion in debt in June. That's the greatest amount ever recorded. And we currently have the second greatest amount of debt on credit cards, $890 billion in credit card debt. And it's accelerating faster than any other time in the last 20 years. And delinquency and default are on the rise commensurately, right? So we can absolutely confirm the truth of these data in the rise of NSF declines, right? across our entire portfolio, from SaaS companies to streaming companies to publishing to all other the boxes, we have a lot of boxes, there's no merchant, no matter if they're a Gold Coast file or not, that is not being impacted by higher insufficient funds declines or delinquency declines. And we can only take what we experience right now and what we read, tea leaves, we just saw the signified state of Commerce 2022 report, which was just issued in late July, which found that two-thirds of U.S. consumers plan to continually cut 
back their spending due to inflationary pressures. So this is going to have you know a serious impact, right? So there's never not friction. Subscriptions are great. We love them. But there's promise and peril associated with them at all times. And economy was good three years ago. But at that very moment in time when the economy was good, America finally decided they were going to go along with the rest of the world and put chips in their credit cards. Well, what did that mean? (laughs) That meant that every card in America was being reissued with a chip. And in many cases, those reissue cards had new credentials, certainly a new expiry date, sometimes new account numbers as well. So there's always friction and you've got to be prepared. You have to have your ear to the rail of what's happening in the world, as well as in the payments world, to be able to meet the challenges of those new friction items. Yeah, really interesting. I mean, you brought up a couple of of really important things, I think. One is when we have more debt on a massive scale, you can expect both cancellations, active churn, voluntary churn, and you can expect an increase in involuntary churn and insufficient funds. But also that just every time things change, the rules change. And the way that you understand it and the way that you interpret what's happening has to change. And you may not have systems in place to catch it, like that example of the new chipped cards. How do you, you can't really plan for that, but you do need to respond rapidly when it happens. Right. So there are tools that have been devised to be able to help you overcome, say, that particular challenge, right? There is something called the account updater service. And now the account updater service has been available for 20 years, but for many of those years, not every merch, not every issuer participated in that. Now every issuer has to participate in it. But there are ways to engage that account updater database that are both optimal and suboptimal. So when you think about retry logic, that has to change over time, depending on the makeup of the type of declines you have. And the same thing with your approach to account updater. These things always used to kind of be unique tools that you use to try to prevent and recover damaged accounts. Now it's so much more important to figure out ways to actually weave those disparate tools together into kind of a seamless garment as much as possible that will capture as many accounts as possible that are falling off the table. And that's why it doesn't have to be from us. It can be anywhere. A payments audit we think is really important because as you said, the rules of engagement change and so therefore the tools of engagement need to be recalibrated. And so that's really kind of an important thing to think about. And I think back to what you said at the beginning, you spoke about yourself as a fictitious consumer with an insufficient funds situation and that you may want to have a particular approach with them, maybe even write them off. And yet, if you know for a fact that only 3% of all customers who have insufficient funds actually go belly up with their card, then that only means that there's still actually a potentially good customer with an active card that's just in a temporary problem. How do we fix that? We don't want to throw that out yet, right? We actually want to give them a little extra time and 
How can we systemically do that? And there are ways to do that just through natural kind of ways of imposing your retry logic and bringing some of these specialized machine learning, AI-driven third parties into play, right? Then, And we often recommend that you try one of them and no strings attached kind of way and see if they work for you, right? After you've done all that you can do. Yeah. So it seems like the advice that you're giving, it starts with recognize that this is not a black box. This is something that can be understood and that not every declined customer is the same. And that there are lots of different things that you can do. And I think it, it almost starts by just acknowledging that. And then you can do an audit, you can experiment, you can ask questions of the different players in your ecosystem, bring them together for a conversation. But it starts with curiosity, I think. Right. Whether through your partners or yourself, creating nimble approaches to processing. And at the end of the day, being aware of these rules. But most of these rules don't result in your losing your license, say, from Visa. They result in mere fines and penalties. So in closing this one, in opening this one hand and then closing the other, they've created these categories of declines, one of which is don't ever retry. And if you do, we're going to fine you, penalize you, assess a fee of a dime per time you retry a decline that's from that bucket. Now, we would say, all right, keep that in mind. But what if it's actually true that if I retry those, I'm going to get a 10% effective recovery just by disobeying and doing a few things to massage that transaction, resubmit it, I'm going to get 10% recovery. Well, if I retry 10 and it cost me a dime each, I spent a dollar, but if it's a $20 subscription and I recover that 10% of the time, I'm trading in a dollar of fees and fines for $20 recovery and the downstream revenue associated with it. That's why we say it's very important as much as possible to measure the result of your efforts so that you don't just take everything at face value. You make decisions in the full light of the data. Be curious, use data, experiment, and adjust which I think is good advice. Now, you help organizations do that with your company, which has your name on it. You were recently merged with Optimized Payments. Can you just, before we close out, just share a little bit about that that acquisition and why it seemed like such a good fit to both of you? Right. Well, hopefully take encouragement from the fact that a podcast brought us together. I was listening to a payments podcast in which (laughs) Anand Goyal, the founder of Optimized Payments, was being interviewed. And I'm listening to it and I'm thinking to myself, wow, what he's describing seems to indicate that our two companies are like exactly adjacent in functionality with just enough overlap that perhaps each of our core competencies could really be complementary and be more than doubly good for the clients in each of our portfolios. And it actually turned out to be true. We trafficked heavily in each other's processes and culture for nine months from April of last year to December of last year. They were using analytics 
they were a 15-year-old company. We were a 17-year-old company at the time. They were using analytics to help their clients save money. We were using analytics and knowledge to help our customers save customers. They did it through fee reduction. We did it through churn reduction. And we have already begun to bring those two disciplines together for our customers' benefit. And quite frankly, it's been an even better fit than I anticipated. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. Well, congratulations. Okay, do you have a minute or two left for a speed round to close out our conversation? Okay. Sure. Okay, first subscription you ever had? Reader's Digest. <laughs> Love it. Subscription that you're enjoying the most right now? I guess if I can't get it off the top of my mind, I would say it is still, it's not streaming. I can tell you that. It's not a box. I can tell you that. It's probably, it's my Compassion International subscription. So it's support a child in poverty so that I have a commitment to that, which is probably my favorite subscription. Beautiful. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Most underutilized but valuable subscription metric. So this is interesting. I would say it's the recovery success number. Even the biggest and best of our customers, when we meet them, are not measuring. And so they have no idea how well they're doing or how poorly they're doing with their recovery logic. And again, like I said, may sound self-aggrandizing, but this is a big deal. We've existed in this for 18 years and an entire vertical has arisen to try to overcome the challenge of churn. And yet after all that is said and done, very few merchants are actually measuring their results. Recovery is the metric that people should be looking at. And then my last question, what's your favorite thing to do in Alabama? Well, I live in New York, but my favorite thing to do in Alabama is eat a lot of food that I absolutely can't get up here and should only eat for the very short periods of time that I visit Alabama. Birmingham, which is where three of my four children live, is probably one of the more underrated barbecue cities on the planet. No, they don't have good pizza, but they certainly- <laughs> New York has that covered. <laughs> we have that covered, right? And the dead giveaway that the pizza isn't any good at any particular joint in Birmingham is if it actually says authentic New York pizza, then that's the one to absolutely avoid. But I love barbecue and I get my fix when I visit our kids in Birmingham. <laughs> love it. Paul Larson, thanks so much for being a guest on Subscription Stories. Really appreciate your wisdom and your insights. That was Paul Larson of Optimized Payments. For more about Paul, go to optimizedpayments.com. And for more about Subscription Stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Paul, go to robbiekelmanbaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Paul and this episode if you especially enjoyed it. Reviews are how listeners find our podcast and we appreciate every one. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.